Well, if you get the sense that there's some excitement building for Vacation Bible School, you're right. There is. Two weeks from today, this place will be transformed by decorations. The energy levels will be very high. It is one of the highlights of our church calendar here, that week of VBS and that ministry. By God's grace, it is a time when we are just so abundantly aware of God's goodness in providing uh, through his people and, and praising him for the work of faith and labor of love that uh, goes on during that time. Um, this morning, as you open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, this passage really speaks to heart of ministry, just what goes into that kind of service or ministry, whether it's VBS, whether it's preaching, whether it's discipling our kids, whether it's coming alongside of someone to share the gospel with them, we get to see in this last few verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's heart for the people of Thessalonica, but more than that, what is the, the driving ambition behind his love for those people. And I want to submit to you that what we see this morning, this glorious ambition that Paul describes here is one that should captivate us, whether it be in a week of service at VBS or whether it be in ministry at the um, senior retirement home that uh, our, our folks will be at this afternoon, whether it be in your workplace alongside colleagues or to your family, what should drive that ministry, the, the ambition that should be behind that is something Paul describes here in these closing verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm just going to read beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2.17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So just to review, those of you who may be first time coming with us here in this walk through the book of 1 Thessalonians, this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the region of Macedonia during the first century. It is a church that was planted by God's grace through Paul's ministry. Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. They begin to preach the gospel there. People come to faith in Christ, a church is born, and then within a real short time, there is great hostility toward Paul and Silas. Uh, Jewish leadership in the town that opposes the gospel um, begins to form a mob and, and comes against the place where Paul and Silas are staying and wants them banished from that town. And so they are forced to leave Thessalonica. From a distance, Paul is concerned about the Thessalonian church people that he has poured his life into. He is eventually able to send one of his colleagues, Timothy, to go back there to see how the church is doing, to see if the church has even survived during this time. And so he goes back and he comes back to Paul and says, the church is standing firm. There is persecution, but they are standing by God's grace. And so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians with really two purposes. The one is to encourage the Thessalonians. These are young believers. They are new in the faith. They are new at all of this church stuff. They are certainly new to experiencing persecution. And so the first part of this is to encourage them and to say, look, God is at work in you. The fact that you are standing firm is evidence of God's grace. And so he is praising God for their work of faith and labor of love and their hope in Jesus Christ. And so it's to encourage them about what God is doing in their lives. And then secondly, it is to exhort them. 
the brunt of the letter as we continue to move through this, we're going to see Paul challenging them to continue to walk in Christ, to continue to grow in Christ, to not be content. When we are pushed, opposed in our faith, there is a, a, a temptation at least to become timid, to become quiet about it in some way. And, and Paul is in preparation for that, speaking to them and exhorting them to excel, to continue to grow in Christ, to not be content where they are. Encouragement and exhortation are cornerstones of Christian ministry. It is what we should be about the business of doing with brothers and sisters in Christ, um, coming alongside, being people who, who recognize what God is doing in other people's lives and encouraging them with that, and also exhorting one another, exhorting one another to walk in Christ's likeness through daily life. Behind all of that ministry, all that we do, whether it's sharing the gospel with someone, whether it's praying with your child, whether it's ministering to someone in need and showing them the love of Christ, behind all of that, as its chief end of that ministry, should be this glorious ambition that we're going to see Paul describe here in this passage. Not the ambition that we would be, um, people would look up to us, that we would have the biggest church, that we would have the best lives, but there is an ambition here that he puts as even greater than that. I want to start at the, the very last part of the passage that we just read, then go back, because I think the last part is where Paul helps us to see this is, this is what he is driving at. This is what strengthens his resolve when he goes to places and is immediately made a target of persecution. This is what causes him to, to stand firm and continue to serve and love people, even if the feelings aren't necessarily reciprocal. This is what pushes Paul forward. And just to read again, verse 19 says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. A glorious ambition that should compel us in ministry, that should move us forward, whether it's serving children at VBS, whether it's um, coming alongside someone in need, whatever it might be, a glorious ambition that should fix our resolve is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are looking forward to a day when our Savior returns and we will stand in his presence. And our delight in that moment will come not only from beholding the presence of our Savior, but will also come from having been faithful to what he has called us to do. And that faithfulness is demonstrated, as Paul is showing here, in the fruit of his ministry. He is looking at the Thessalonians, these people that he has only spent a short time with and poured his life into, as those with whom he will one day stand before that Savior together, and looking with this great sense of ambition that that is what he is living for, to be before Christ, having been faithful to what Christ has called him to, and seeing around him the evidence of God's work through him in faithful service. When Jesus Christ returns, when you stand before your Savior, whether he comes soon or you pass from this earth and stand before him, you will not be tempted in the presence of Jesus Christ to say, look at all that I've built Look at the house that I own. Look at my little empire. Look how fit I am. Look at my clothes. Look at anything like that. The, the, the thing that we are going to be eagerly desiring is to glorify him and, and, and to, 
demonstrate to him that our deepest longing has been that by his grace and power we have faithfully served him. That ambition of being able to essentially give back to to Jesus the, the trophies of his grace, the evidence of his work through us, and to find in that our delight. So I want to look at this. I want to preface this, though, when we talk about serving, standing before Christ, a sense of reward in that. This is reward from God's grace. This is not an earning sort of scenario here. So don't, don't misunderstand when we look at this pouring one's life into people and to ministry because that is what brings pleasure to God and that is what God deems faithful. That is also not as an earning of salvation, if you will. It is not done in a way of saying, God, see, I'm doing all of these good things, so therefore you must approve of me. Our approval can only come by God's grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is because the Savior died on the cross and took our sin on himself and then rose again that we are able to have any claim on God, and that is we trust in Christ. We repent of our sins and we trust in Christ, and so what follows then... That is this, this joyous opportunity to serve. We, we are rewarded with the privilege of being able to thank and to serve him. So Paul describes here in, in verse 19 when he says this sort of rhetorical question, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? What are these things? He says, is it not you? So he is describing the Thessalonians as his hope, his joy, and his crown of boasting. Let's think about the first one as his hope. We get when we say God is our hope. We see that throughout the scripture. Put your hope in God, trust in God. Colossians speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the fact that Jesus Christ is in believers. We we have our hope in that. And so we understand what it means to say God is the object of my hope. But what does he mean here when he says you are our hope? I think this in context You have to remember, Paul is thinking about the return of Jesus. All of this is subject around verse 19 in the context that before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, you are our hope in that. He's not staking his hope in them for salvation. His hope is in the Lord. But what he's talking about here, this hope, is this sense of eager anticipation of standing before Christ with these people who he has had a part in their lives. He is eagerly anticipating standing before Jesus with those in whose lives he has poured out his own strength and well-being to to bring them to Christ, to lead them to Christ. There is this building eagerness, as there should be for all of us. When we, we know that Christ is returning, the thought of the return of Christ can often make us pause and look at our lives. What What do I want to be found doing at that moment? What should my life look like when Christ returns? And certainly we want to have that that sense of of standing before him in delight, of eagerness, anticipating him. And that's what Paul's speaking about here when he speaks of the Thessalonians being our our hope. He's saying, I'm not going to stand there alone. I am eagerly anticipating the return of Christ because I will stand there with you. You as my brothers and sisters, we will stand before the Savior together, and you are the fruit of ministry that that Jesus has blessed me with. And I am able to to just see that sort of reward back to Jesus because of what he has allowed me to do in your lives. And so there's an eagerness about coming before Jesus to present to him people in whose lives 
Paul has loved and served and invested. And there should be that sense of eagerness in us, that sense of, of hope. It's like a child who um, makes a, a gift or a card for a parent, you know. Some, some special day is coming, and so the other parent has the child draw, you know, hand make a card of some kind, and the special day may be a couple days off, but the child is eager. I mean, they've, they've made the card, and Dad comes home from work, and maybe it's only Thursday, and Father's Day is a few days away, and, and the child just can't wait because there's this eagerness to give it to Dad because I can't wait to see the smile on his face. There's just this eagerness to, to see something that you know that he will delight in. And that's the sort of eagerness that Paul is speaking of here when he talks about hope. I, I long to present back to my Savior that which he delights in, which is the, the glory of his name being spread through all peoples. And so the, to the degree that I can participate in that and bring to God people that he has worked in their lives and, and saved them and allowed me to be a part of that process, that is something that I should be eager for. It's something we should be eager for. So it's, there's a hope, and it's coupled with joy. He says, you are our hope and our joy. What could cause more joy and worship than to come to Jesus with his children that he graciously entrusted to your care? Ever watched somebody else's kids and had that moment when the parents come home and, and you're just sort of wondering, what will the children say about your care at that moment? Will they say, I had a wonderful time, or will they say, Oh, I'm so glad you're home. That was terrible. You don't want that, right? You want them, you, you want them to, to know that, that they express some joy. As believers in Jesus Christ, he is entrusting, stewarding to us people to minister, to, to serve. And, and, and the end of that, as we minister to those people, should be to cause them to grow like him and to one day take joy when they meet him with us. We are being used by Christ to, to share in the joy of the gospel, to minister that joy to others so they might share in that, and together we would rejoice in Christ at his coming. Together we would share in that joy. God, God doesn't need us to save people, to bring people along in their walk. He's not wondering if we're going to do our job because otherwise his plan is thwarted. That's not the case. God doesn't need us, and yet by his grace... He chooses to use you and I in people's lives. He uses us as instruments, as means by which he brings people to see his goodness and his greatness. And so that's why there will be such joy in standing there with people that we have loved and, and served and, and poured into their lives and say, Lord, here's, here's some that you have entrusted to my care. Here's someone that, that you gave me the privilege of discipling. And I pray, Lord, that, that they, they find great joy in you. And, and that's what Paul's expressing here. You are our hope. You are our joy. And then he says you are our crown of boasting. The, the crown idea goes back to what we often know when we think of, of Greek culture back in the, the, the Roman Empire at that time was kind of the wreath, the sort of wreath crown that was given to the, the victor in the athletic conquest or to a military victor. They were given the, the, the pretty leaves that were formed into a crown to, to celebrate and to honor them. It was given to public servants who deserved praise or to those who did heroic acts. And as one commentator explained, in Roman culture, it was not unusual when you were presented with that to then in some way express 
um, gratitude to the deity that you believed in, to essentially see that crown as a tribute to the deity that you believed you had gotten your strength from. And so certainly that is, as, as Paul is seeing this here, these people who have come to faith in Christ through his preaching are like a crown that God has blessed him with, but that he will ultimately pay and tribute back to Christ, that he will ultimately give back in glory to God because it's God who gave him the ability to do that and serve them. But they, they are like this crown of boasting. It is not boastful pride for us to desire to serve the Lord well and be used by him and to have him commend faithfulness. He speaks from beginning to end of Scripture that he blesses faithfulness, that he rewards that. And so there's nothing wrong with pursuing as a believer in Jesus Christ the, the, the commendation of having been faithful to God. And so he says, you are the evidence. You are the crown we wear that boasts of Christ's strength and grace working through us. And we just, we just long to present that back to him. Ultimately, all that Paul is writing here all has in its focus the return of Christ. And he says that our, our joy, our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. He is engaged in ministry here, understanding the hardships and the sacrifice that come with it, with this constant focus on one day I will stand before Jesus, and that is where my, my greatest joy and delight and fulfillment will come, and I long to be standing there with you, that, that I have had a part in your lives and, and been able to be a part of the, the work that God has done in you. That is the glorious ambition, I think, that is designed to give us joy and to help us to share in his great work. John, John Stott writes this. He says, Paul's joy in this world and his glory in the next are tied up with the Thessalonians, whom Christ through the apostles' ministry, has transformed. His joy in this world, his glory in the next to come, are bound up in these, these wonderful people that he has been able to serve and see God bring to faith in Christ. We have that privilege to minister to people and then to, to by God's grace, be rewarded for faithfulness in ministry. Paul Tripp, in his book on instruments in the Redeemer's hand, says God never intended us to simply be the objects of his love. We are also called to be the instruments of that love in the lives of others. That's what Paul's doing. That's why Paul is engaged in ministry, because he is looking forward with great anticipation to standing before Christ and to, to bringing Christ the fruit of that ministry and to praising Christ for the fruit of that ministry. And that's what we are being challenged as well here as we look at what Paul is doing. For you and I, this, this may be helping with snacks or games at VBS. This may be teaching your daughter, getting on your knees and teaching her to pray. This may be ministering to someone at LCAC and coming alongside them with, with needs and, and helping to meet some of those needs. It may be holding the hand of a senior. We've got a group at the, at going out to the crossings this afternoon, and it may be just standing there and being that, that warm hand that, that loves someone there and demonstrates the love of Christ. In all of that should be this this joy that comes from the eager anticipation of standing before Christ and hearing his commendation for faithfulness, uh, knowing that we have done what he has called us to do and that we have been faithful stewards. And so with that in mind, 
If you look back at verse 17, that's, that's the end. Verse 17 says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So how does this look? How does this play out in our lives? This, this glorious ambition to one day stand before Christ, what ought it look like in practical terms? And I would suggest to you two things. One is, it is evident in a deep sacrificial commitment to love and serve others. It looks like life in the local church. It looks like our coming alongside one another and being devoted to one another and loving one another and serving each other. Not just here for Sunday morning and then gone, but having a passion for people. There's that, that sense of devotion that you get in Paul's words when he says, we were, were torn away from you. He's describing the circumstances of being ejected from Thessalonica, being forcibly kicked out of, of Thessalonica because of this, this gang that wants him out of there. And he describes it as being torn away from you. The, the Greek word that's used there was used in the Greek language to describe both the, uh, the orphaning of a child and also the bereavement of parents who lost a child. The term could go either way to speak of a forced separation, a painful separation of parent and child. Paul had used parental imagery already, remember, in, in this letter. He had already said, when we came to you, we were like a nursing mother with a child. You can't get any more picture, a better picture of affection and, and, and closeness and concern. A nursing mother who tenderly holds her child and cares for that child. He says, we were like a father. Who, whose desire was to teach you and instruct you, to exhort you so that you would grow, that you would walk in a manner of obedience. And so he's already used that imagery. And now he's saying, so when we were thrown out of Thessalonica, it was as if we, like a parent, had lost a child. It's like we had been torn apart from you. And it, it, it's that sort of depth of hurt and grief. And yet he says, even though we were torn away from you, it was in person, but not in heart. There was still this deep longing, because then he goes on to describe, we endeavored eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. That word for endeavored is more than just an emotional sort of feeling. It is action. He and Silas took steps. They tried to figure out how to get back. Doesn't describe it all here as to what they did, whether or not they did begin to travel but he's, he's making the point that we, we actually did everything in our power to try to get to you because we were devoted to you, which grows out of, that devotion grows out of this ambition to stand before Christ with you. And so we were determined to get to you, and we kept trying and trying. Richard Phillips writes, it is obvious from Paul's statements that he sees the church as a community knit together by love. Separation is hard when you're separated from someone you love. Those of you who experience military service and are separated from a spouse for a long period of time understand that, that sense of you've got to trust in Christ, but they're still human. There's, there's, there's still some grief there. There's still some hardship to that separation. Best I can equate that to is when I was in college and we had just started dating in college and we were separated that summer by a, a monumental two-hour drive. At least it seemed like the end of the world at that point, that two-hour drive, because we were separated because we were in love. And, and the week was basically just a countdown to the weekend, to when we would get together on the weekend. Some of you have had that experience. You remember that or you're going through it now. And, and th there is that, that longing for being with that person and, and you feel it. 
and you want to be with them. And that's how Paul is describing his relationship with the Thessalonians. How, how deeply do you, is that bond of love with you and your brothers and sisters in Christ? How, how, is that, how does that longing play itself out in your life to be with brothers and sisters in Christ? How, how much is that urge in your life to be in fellowship with them? To long to be alongside them, to, to see them, and, and to worship with them, and to encourage them and exhort them. What Paul describes here is an intensity and passion. We endeavored eagerly. We kept trying to get to you. And, and what he's communicating to us is we should be investing our lives in people in such a way that, that it, being apart from them is like we have to be pulled away. We, we want to be with them, and it feels like we have to be almost separated in order not to be because we long to be able to pour our lives into them. Andrew Young writes, Paul's life was bound up in the welfare of those he served. He loved them, felt for them, and agonized over them. What an example he provides for Christian workers in every age. The Christian church needs pastors, elders, leaders, and members who care deeply for people. That glorious ambition of knowing that I will stand before Christ should compel me to want to love the people around me, whether it be in this body of believers or my neighbors or coworkers, but compel me to lovingly, sacrificially serve them because I long to bring them to see the glory of Christ. It should also put in us, the second thing here I think is a sincere determination to persist with them, even in the face of opposition. So he says here in 2.18, we, we desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He says in this passage, I, I wanted to come to you, and, and the literal rendering here is we tried once and then twice, where it says again and again. He's saying we, we were persistently trying to come to you, and yet in some way Satan hindered them. The word that he uses here for, for hindrance in the Greek was a word that also had military ramifications. It was used to describe how a, a advancing or retreating, if you will, I guess I should say, army trying to get away from another army would tear up the road behind it or would bring boulders and all kinds of debris on the road to block the path. When you had a narrow road and limited passageway, you'd block the advancing army from coming to you. And that's what that word means, that idea of hindered. And so Paul is saying that in some way, despite his most diligent efforts, Satan found a way to block Paul from getting to Thessalonica. He found some way to, to stop Paul from advancing in ministry. It's not clear precisely how that happened. And need to remember, though, this is more than just one man's record of what happened. This is God's word. And so in some way that, that we don't fully grasp from this passage, Satan aggressively worked to keep Paul from getting back to Thessalonica. Satan in some way hindered him from making forward movement. There's all sorts of speculation as to how that was done. Could be governing officials, maybe in Macedonia, who prevented Paul's travel, wouldn't, wouldn't let him get to Thessalonica. Could be some kind of physical affliction. We, we see in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks of a thorn in the flesh, some sort of physical ailment that he describes as a messenger of Satan. So it might have been some affliction that prevented him from travel. It's not clear. What is clear is that there was some hindrance. We don't know what it was, so we, we, we shouldn't try to be too firm here. And similarly, we should be careful to not jump to conclusions 
every time there's a challenge or some obstacle in our own Christian ministry. We don't necessarily get to conclude from this passage that every time something goes wrong in ministry, it must be Satan who hindered us. We need to hold that loosely and with care. Paul does not throw this around, and Paul is one who deals with persecution and opposition throughout ministry, and this is one of the few places we see this kind of statement. So in some way, God revealed this to Paul. In some ways, we need to learn from this as well. Let me give you, I think, three quick implications of of what he says here. First one is that Satan obviously does have some ability to hinder Christian ministry. We need to caveat all that by saying Satan is not all-powerful, Satan is not all-knowing, And Satan is subordinate to God. He is not able to thwart the will of God and leave God in the place of going, oh, I don't know what to do now. Satan just pulled something on me that that just took me by surprise. It doesn't happen. God is ultimately still in control. And yet it's not a stretch to assume that there are still ways in which Satan actively blocks Christian ministry. I think we, we perhaps see it in our own culture, in, in the world around us, in governments that, that advocate against Christianity, that advocate for persecution of Christians, that shut down the gospel. Uh, that, that clearly is a, an, a tactic of Satan to, to try to thwart the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so there's the, the reality that Satan can in some way hinder. Second implication of this is there are times when ministry is hard. Whether it is a direct hindrance of Satan or not, there will be times when, despite our deepest longings and desires and plans for how ministry should look and go, it will just not go according to the way that we plan or desire. We will fall short. We will not accomplish what we hoped would be accomplished. And and, and that's just a, a product of the fact that We are fallen sinners in a fallen world who are serving fallen sinners. And so sometimes, even in our best efforts, we will find that that we are rebuffed by people that we've sought to love. We are not able to accomplish what we had hoped. Sometimes ministry can be hard, and so therefore the third implication is we need to pray and persist. Ministry, at its core, we are convinced, is a work that is empowered and enabled by God through His Spirit. We don't do this because we're skillful enough and smart enough and strong enough and wise enough on our own to to build God's kingdom. What we do is by the work and grace and power of God in and through us, and there's no better way of expressing that dependence than prayer. Even Paul, when it comes to the Thessalonians, ultimately at the end, there's a number of prayers here, but in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul ultimately says, we tried, and and Satan thwarted us, and we are are just praying and asking God. It ultimately, it depends on God to do, and therefore we express that through prayer. And so when ministry is hard, that that is God's kind way of reminding us that it is not about our own wisdom and strength. It's about depending on him and expressing that in prayer and crying out for his help, much as we see throughout the Psalms. But then the other thing is to persist. I mean, that, Paul's model here is of we tried once, we tried twice, we endeavored eagerly, we persisted despite Satan's hindrances, we continued to press forward. Challenges and obstacles and people rebuffing us and hindrances will come along in ministry. And those should not be immediately interpreted then as it's time to quit, it's time to stop serving, I guess this isn't going to work, and call it a day. 
Paul demonstrates for us a sense of if this, if this ministry is driven by the long-term glorious ambition of standing before Jesus Christ, and it's his church that we are a part of building, and it's his in the end that we stand before, and his reward, then I can persist, and I can, I can rest in his strength, and I can continue to try as long as he enables me to continue to serve. You and I have the sweet privilege of, of being called, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, being called into ministry to serve other people, to, to emulate what Paul is describing here, and that is to, to look forward to the return of Christ, but to use this time well in preparing for that and serving him and glorifying him here. And so here would be my question that I would leave you with this morning. Who are those people in your life who are your hope and your joy and your crown? Who are those individuals that God is putting around your life to whom you are living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, to whom you have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to whom you have the chance to disciple and to build into and to equip. Who are those people that one day you long to stand before your Savior and know that this is your hope and your joy and your crown? This is the evidence of what God kindly did by his grace through your life and how he brought glory to himself by his light shining through you. And if you are... Here's the last application. If you are someone's hope, joy, crown. If there's someone who has invested in you, someone who has poured out their life for you, someone who has come alongside you, can I encourage you to to encourage them and to help them to know that? To to just not, it's not to... Not to be a boastful source of pride, but it is very much to do what Paul is doing throughout this letter, and that is saying to the Thessalonians, look, God's using you throughout Macedonia and Achaia. I'm not celebrating you in that sense personally. I'm celebrating God's work through you, and I want you to see what God is doing in your midst. And so if you are somebody's joy or hope or crown, would you share that with them? Would you encourage them and say, God is working through you, and God has helped me because of how he's used you? We have that ambition. There's a lot of things that drive us, a lot of things that move us, that compel us on a day-to-day basis. The thing that Paul says ultimately that should be compelling us is knowing we will one day, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, will stand before him. And that is where we will find our greatest delight and hope and joy in fulfilling his will. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the work of ministry The fact that in your calling people to faith in Jesus Christ, it is a demonstration of your sweet grace and kindness to save us. But the fact that there are people in our lives whom we can point to who shared the gospel or who prayed for us or who served us in some way is just a marvelous testimony to how you use us as instruments. I pray this week that as a body of believers, you would challenge us again and again from this passage to be prayerful, to be persistent, to be people who are devoted in our love to one another and and boldly showing that by how we care for each other, how we serve one another. Thank you for the example of Paul, which is patterned after the model of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for his people. Help us to be servants who will sacrifice, who will persist, not because we're looking for a claim, but because we ultimately are resting our hope and joy in that day when we stand before Jesus Christ.
in whose name we pray. Amen.